Hello and welcome to New Wave Coffee, a podcast by Bellwether Coffee. Here at Bellwether, we believe we can create a coffee industry that's more inclusive, more equitable, and where running a coffee business can be both more profitable and more sustainable. In this six-episode series, we're taking you on an audio journey into the future of everything coffee. We're going to talk about how the coffee shop as a business model really failed during COVID. The very basic seeming question of which coffees taste good, and the more complicated questions of who decides that and why. We're also going to talk about innovation and technology in the cafe and the role that it has in evolving our industry. My name is Arno Holshue. I'm the chief coffee officer here at Bellwether. I started out as a barista and did pretty much every job that the industry has to offer on my way to where I am now. I love caffeine. I love the way coffee tastes. And I love the people that work in coffee and supporting better outcomes for them. I'm Liz Pashad. I'm the product marketing manager here at Bellwether. I also started my career as a barista. I've been a roaster and I own my own cafe and roastery and was a green coffee importer for a time. So I bring all of that here to Bellwether to help get more equity in the supply chain for coffee farmers and to help business owners here in the States open their own cafes. So in this episode, we're talking about green coffee prices, not the price you pay in the cafe for a cup of coffee, but the prices that coffee roasters paid for their coffee before it ever got to you. This issue has a lot of layers we're gonna dig into. The first thing we need to understand is how much coffee farmers currently get paid for their coffee and how that price impacts them. The second issue we're gonna discuss are the many misconceptions around coffee pricing. We're gonna explore what reality actually is so that we can face the issue armed with the right information. And lastly, we're going to take a look at the new way of understanding what the real price is that farmers do need to get paid so that we, as an industry, can ensure that they have long-term sustainable livelihoods. Because if it's not clear through the episode, I'm going to say it now. We need coffee farmers to be incentivized to stay in coffee. The prices that the industry pays today for its green coffee that we think is working is actually failing our farmers, and we're going to talk about why. So Liz, in this episode, we're going to be talking a lot about the commodity price of coffee. And I just want to acknowledge something that commodity prices are really volatile. And right now, uh, as I am speaking into this microphone, the commodity price of coffee is double what it was when we started doing the research you're going to hear about here. But I think that it's, it's still true. You'll hear why, but the commodity price is a terrible way for us to be pricing specialty coffee. So to kick off the story, I want to introduce you again to someone you already know, Arno, uh, one of our farm partners. Camilo Enciso Suarez. Oh, great. Camilo is an amazing person. And did you know he's recently become the father of a young girl? Yo tengo una niña de, de dos años. And just so everybody knows, Camilo is the operator of a cooperative called Azopet. La Asociación de Productores Ecológicos de Planadas. And he's right in the mountains in a region of Colombia called Tolima. Somos 384 familias. Has about 384 families that each have their own farms that sell coffee to the cooperative. Yo tengo, tengo una pequeña finca, así como... And he also owns his own small farm, which is common. I've been on an origin trip to Colombia, and I kind of have a feeling for what things are like further south in the country, but what's his farm like? Vamos a describir el paraíso. He describes it like paradise. A 1,850 metros de altura. It's very high in elevation, about 1,900 meters, which is about 6,000 feet. La finca está en medio de dos quebradas. And it's nestled between two ravines. So, Arno, when I got on the phone with Camilo, he told me a story, and it's a story that for me really drove home the issue that coffee farmers are facing everywhere. Cuento una, una historia de una barista de París. So Camilo met a barista from Paris. Vino a Colombia queriendo conocer. 
who had never seen a coffee tree before, traveled to visit Camilo. And she came to Colombia and wanted to pick coffee. You know, you're you're serving this product every day. You kind of want to return to the place that it came from and and get a sense of terroir, perhaps. So she didn't just want to stay for free. And Camilo said, well, hey, why don't you pick coffee? like everybody else, and I'll give you free room and board, and I'll pay you a local wage, which is really common for how farmers pay their pickers. So, on the day of the work, she sent Camilo a photo of herself, very happy, looking great, like excited to get to work. But once she got into it, it was raining that day. The slope was very slippery. Coffee gets picked by hand, as you're well aware. The work was tough. It was grueling. And it was hard. She, just like many coffee pickers that you see, was not outfitted with Patagonia rain gear. She was wearing trash bags as rain gear. So, after a full day's work, She's exhausted, run down, and then she gets paid almost nothing for her work. Yeah. So yeah, you got to imagine there are millions of people who go out into the fields to pick coffee all across the world doing this really hard backbreaking work and getting paid barely anything at all. Not really a living. And this barista experiencing this for herself points the finger at Camilo. Que era injusto. You know, this barista says to Camilo, hey, this is an injustice. You need to be paying your pickers more. Mm-hmm. And he turned it around on her. He asked her, what do your customers pay you for a cup of coffee in your coffee shop in Paris? And she said, three euro. And so he said, how many coffees can you make with the pound of roasted coffee that you have? And she says about 50. So, what you can earn selling those 50 coffees in France, he says, with that money here, you could buy 100 kilos of green coffee in Colombia. Basically, for that 150 bucks, you can buy 150 coffees in France, or you can buy thousands and thousands of coffees here in Colombia. Yeah, it's always so shocking. You know, the thing that makes coffee delicious is the coffee in it, and yet that is... <laughs> That is the cheapest part of the experience. Yeah, you know, if you go down to your local cafe, you spend five bucks for a cup of coffee, uh, the farmer would be lucky if 20 cents of that $5 went back into their hands. Yeah, so essentially Camilo is saying, we're not the ones perpetuating the injustice. It's the people at the other end of the supply chain whose dollars are not funneling back to us meaningfully. So if Camilo could earn better prices, those would funnel down to the pickers and the other farmers. But the fact is that coffee prices on the commodity market have been really, really low, um, especially these last 30 years on average. It occasionally spikes, but the average trends down. And even that is despite the fact that the retail sector is growing by leaps and bounds, as we know. So those two things are out of scope with one another. Yeah, absolutely. So this is what Camilo had to say about coffee farmers who are trying to make a living selling their coffee at the commodity price about a year ago. 
hacer muchos trabajos en otras fincas. Camila o... says that coffee farmers are actually working on other people's farms because they can't even make ends meet on their own farm, so they have to pick up side work. No tener la lavadora. They can't afford basic amenities, eh, Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi, washing machines, etc. So, what's Camila's read on what happens next? I mean, these prices are unsustainably low. What's going to happen to the communities and people around there? Pero que se abandone el cultivo del café, yo no creo. Well, Camilo says people won't stop growing coffee completely, but they will slowly transition out of it. And that's because farmers have tried to grow other products, but because their farms are so remote and the roads are so rough, especially during the winter and the rainy season, they just can't get their products to market in time. Right. You just simply can't grow something perishable like food because it would never get to market in time before it's spoiled. So, no, that sounds like a really tough situation. It is. El enemigo es el, el cambio climático. And, unsurprisingly, climate change is just making things harder. Not knowing when the rain is going to come, which means you don't know when your coffee trees are going to flower, which means you don't know when your coffee is actually going to be ready for harvest and when you can sell it and pay your bills, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, it's a really untenable situation for people trying to make a living. So Arno, we're in specialty coffee and, you know, as an industry, we tell ourselves that we're the solution to the problems that these coffee communities are facing because we've introduced transparency, we've introduced higher pricing, and we pay those higher prices because the quality of the coffee is higher. And we also expect that combined with transparency, more of that money that we pay will end up in the hands of farmers like Camilo. Are our expectations met, Liz? Liz? Like... Yeah, I mean, your skepticism is accurate, right? So that's what we really are trying to dig into. Does that money that we pay as a specialty coffee consumer pay Camilo enough to have a thriving long-term business? Mm -hmm. So to explore this, I talked to Chad Trewick. Oh, great. I love Chad's work. My name is Chad Trevick. I am a consultant in the specialty coffee industry. Been working in specialty coffee for about 30 years now already. So Arno, Chad's going to share a really powerful story in a moment. But before we get to that, I want to give the listeners a little bit of context. So while the commodity price for coffee has stayed flat over the last 20 or 40 years, the retail price of coffee has escalated. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, that sounds exactly right to me. When I started in coffee, green coffee cost about what it does today. And a cup of brewed coffee we sold for $2. Today, we'd sell that cup of brewed coffee for $4 although we're paying the same price to the farmers. Yeah, so Chad shared a personal anecdote that I think really nails this disparity. You know, he was a coffee buyer for a very large specialty roaster in the U.S., meaning he was the guy on the ground buying green coffee from farmers and importers and bringing it in to be roasted. And to be clear, you know, Chad is the good guy here. He's not buying coffee at the commodity market pricing. He's buying them at the higher specialty pricing. He's doing what the industry says is the right thing here. And he was visiting a coffee producer in Guatemala. I was with the farmer's son, who I already had known for probably five years at this time. And we were sitting at the top of uh, this beautiful lookout that they have on this big rock. And this kid had always told me about his dreams to go to university and eventually to have his own travel agency. And he was going to travel the world. And he specifically wanted to travel to uh, Netherlands. And so that day I said, why, why are you still here? I mean, you always said you were going to go to school and you wanted to travel and you wanted to do these things. And he said, well, 
the coffee prices haven't been very good. And so my family has to, instead of uh, send me away to university, we need to work on, you know, fixing the farm, fixing the vehicles, upholding infrastructure investments that we need to do here. And so I'm here, I'm, I'm working on the farm. And what happened to me at that moment was, you know, holy shit. I buy all this coffee. I am the prices. And so it was really my own adherence to the, the for-profit company's target prices that were leading to this specific family's like ongoing financial hardship and the loss of opportunity for this, this kid who had these cool dreams to see the world and do stuff. And honest to God, once I felt that and saw that, I couldn't unsee it. So one of the things I think is interesting about Chad's realization is that the principle about paying more for quality and for quality of life is baked into specialty coffee as an industry. And yet we have discovered, Chad has discovered, that even specialty prices are not enough. They're not only not enough for farmers to thrive, they're not even enough to cover cost of production in some regions still. You know, Liz, as the chief coffee officer of Bellwether and as somebody who's been in the industry for a second, I actually think that we want to fix this as an industry. But one of the problems for us is something that I'll have to use an analogy to explain. And I'm going to use an analogy about used cars. Like if you're looking for a used car, this specific car you want, you'd go around and you would say like, what are other people paying for this used car? Right? That's like a great thing that you can do now. You can go and you say other people are showing you what they paid. Then I know what the market's really at. So we don't have that for specialty coffee, which ironically is in some ways an outgrowth of people trying to do direct trade with farmers, which sounded really good at the time. But it meant that nobody can tell what they paid that farmer. So we don't have the ability to compare our prices to the prices of other coffee buyers. So we don't have the information about what other people are paying for their specialty coffees. We do have some information, and that's what the commodity price of coffee is at any given time, right? Now, the commodity price is going to be different from the specialty price because you're going to pay more for the higher quality on the specialty market. But we can't see that. All we can see is this commodity. And that's a problem. So, like, if, if I were to buy a coffee from Huevitanango in Guatemala today, I would say, great, I want to buy this coffee. And they it would probably be offered to me as 75 cents or $1.50 over the C market. The C market is in C for the commodity market, the commodity price. Because all they know about what the right price to pay is there's the C market plus something for quality. That doesn't really show them like what other people might be paying or what the farmer might need to be paid. Basically, they have to use the C market as their primary price discovery tool. The point that I think does need to be made is that the C market price for coffee bears no relation to the cost of producing that coffee. That's right. All those coffees in Guatemala, their prices float up and down based upon how much coffee is being produced in like Brazil. Right. You know, because Brazil is the biggest coffee producing nation in the world. But at the same time, you know, you know that you're paying above the sea. And so you may think that that's good enough, but that's not a good enough way of setting prices. So the reason I brought in Chad is because, you know, he runs one of the industry's leading cutting edge projects that brings transparency into the coffee market. And to be clear, this is the best way that our industry has up until now figured out how to set prices. This is the gold standard. So what Chad did was 
try and address the issue that you just raised, which is help people understand what other importers and roasters are paying for their green coffee to attempt to have not only data about what people are paying, but attempt to perhaps standardize some prices in these countries. So Chad's going to take us through a story of how this project came about. So tell us about the transaction guide. How does it work? Yeah, okay, so the Transaction Guide is a project that is based at Emory University. I work with my colleague, Dr. Peter W. Roberts, and it started out as uh, Transparent Trade Coffee. And Transparent Trade Coffee did this really cool thing where there was a list of roasters who sort of volunteered the green coffee prices that they paid. And then my colleague Peter would calculate the percent of the retail price that actually stayed in the country where coffee is produced. And I think it was called the return to origin percentage. The return to origin percentage. Liz, tell me how that works. Sure. So say if a bag of roasted coffee from Guatemala costs $20 on the shelf at a cafe, what is the percentage of money paid for that bag that actually stays in the country where the coffee is grown? If that percentage is 20%, then that amount would be $4. So, okay, great. So $20 for a bag of coffee, of which $4 stays in Guatemala. Because 20% is the return to origin percentage. And so I looked at this and thought, wow, what a cool project. But there is a problem. Yeah, it's a cool project, but it's a pretty small project because of the people who are proud enough about the prices they're paying to volunteer that information. Yes, yes, selection bias. I get it. Yeah. So basically, as Chad says, only the companies who are really paying a lot for their green coffee would be vocal about it, right? It was a small sliver of the entire specialty coffee market. Makes me wonder how much lower the actual average price paid was in the market. Right. And that's the number we really need to care about, too. So the problem is that if you're a company, you don't want to look bad against these other companies. So what's the solution? Chad came up with something. And so I suggested, you know, let's do something that doesn't seem very transparent, but in fact, it allows for transparency. And that was to introduce anonymity into the way that people could share the information about the prices that they paid. This is a system that we have to attack, not necessarily the actors. And the way that Chad does this, it lets you see what the system is doing, not what the people are. Yeah, exactly. And so everybody's data is aggregated, chopped up, categorized, and is now totally anonymous. Right, right. So this report is now called the Specialty Coffee Transaction Guide. And, happy to report, it was a huge success. So now we know, for the first time as an industry, what we are all paying producers for different qualities of coffee, all anonymously. We have 81 data donors at this point. We're in the process of onboarding probably another 10 to 15 more. We have $2.1 billion of coffee transactions in there, just over 1.9 or 1.09 billion pounds of green specialty coffee. And just a quick plug for the Bellwether team. We are also data donors to the Specialty Coffee Transaction Guide. I really think everybody should be a data donor. Yeah, and it's interesting, I think, because 81 doesn't sound like a very large number, but that represents a significant amount of transactions. $2.1 billion of coffee transactions are represented by just 81 data donors. That's a sizable impact. 
Yeah, Liz, and to help the listener at home sort of visualize what this thing actually looks like, I've got it up here in front of me. So what you see here is that you'll see different crop years, and you can see three prices for each crop year. You'll see what the average price paid for a pound of green coffee was by all the people who donated data in that year. You'll see what the low price was, sort of what the 25th percentile price was, right? And uh, what a high price was, which is sort of the 75th percentile price. These prices that you see here are like almost double the C market prices. The, the average price that the companies were paying for specialty coffee is almost double what the commodity prices were. It breaks down these prices also by quality category and it's really rich data source that I can now use as a green coffee buyer to figure out what the right market price is for coffees. And Chad actually speaks to that directly. Because I can now go to my CFO and say, Yep, we hear all the time that the coffee commodities market prices, it's low, it's unsustainable, it's whatever, but we're not buying those coffees. We're buying these special coffees at these different qualities and different quantities. And here are the prices that our peers are paying. We have to do that in order to maintain the loyalty of our long-term relationships. So the benefit of the guide is understanding all of these coffee prices, but unfortunately, the price that you're looking at in the specialty coffee transaction guide isn't actually the price that the farmer earned for that coffee. You're right, those are not the farmer's prices. Those are free on board prices, which is a technical term, and you have to bear with me for a second as my head becomes ever more egg-like in shape during this episode. <laughs> So free on board, also known as FOB, it's a global commodity shipping term that means the coffee has been farmed and harvested and processed and everything. It's finished and it's been put on a boat and it's ready to go someplace to be roasted. There's a lot of hands that that coffee has to pass through after that coffee leaves the farm and before it gets onto the boat, right? So That's right. those are people at the mill, people that transport the coffee, exporter fees, even, you know, like importer relationships. Those, there are middle people which are essential. Farmers grow fruit and what gets exported are cleaned, dried seeds. It's really different products. Yeah, so to go back to our $20 bag of coffee, if say 20% was the return to origin, meaning $4 of that $20 is going back to Guatemala, that is the FOB free on board dollar amount. The farm gate price, which would be the price that the farmer actually received, could be potentially 50% of the FOB price. It varies by country. The discrepancy varies widely between FOB and farm gate, in which case, in that example, the farmer would only earn $2 from that $20 bag of coffee. I just want to jump in and stress that again. As much as 50% of the money that you see in the specialty coffee transaction guide is not actually going to the farmer, and they could actually be earning even less than that. Yeah, and in some cases, as much as 80% of that FOB free on board price doesn't go down to the farmer. So in that instance, they would be earning just 20% of that number you see in the transaction guide. So Arno, as an industry, what we would like to do is return more money to farmers who are receiving the least of any actor in the supply chain. And in order to do that, we have to really separate FOB from farm gate pricing to know what farmers are making. This is how Chad put it. Free on board pricing is not particularly useful when you're having a conversation with a producer who happens to be selling coffee cherry uh, to a mill and not green coffee, right? Critical difference. Yeah, there you go. So what Chad's project has helped us to understand is 
that there is a discrepancy between FOB and the farm gate price. And that in order to really do better on pricing, we need to understand the farm gate price, right? So that's thing number one. Right. But even then, we have another problem. Right, because you might know how much that farmer is getting paid for a kilo of coffee cherry, but what you don't know is how much it may have cost to grow that kilo of coffee cherry, right? Exactly. How much money that person needs to eat. Yes, and Chad speaks to that. So like, what if you know this information? Farm gate price information. But you can't say definitively or not whether that price covers the cost to produce in Colombia or whether that price covers a, a farmer's ability to pay him or herself and the people who work on the farm minimum wage or better, right? We don't know. We don't have these things. There's a lot of work right now being done related to living income and living wage because from what I understand, in conversations with many people who produce coffee, our prices don't even always cover the cost to produce, let alone living income or minimum wage. So Arno, to recap, for a long time as an industry, we set prices based on the sea market. And if our prices were higher than that, we were doing a good job. And then Chad comes along, and now instead of the sea market as a reference price, says we can actually look at what other coffee roasters are paying on average for different qualities of coffee. We have a better reference point now, but there are still two major problems with the transaction guide. One, the pricing is FOB, not farm gate. And even if we got down to the farm gate, you know, what the farmer actually gets paid for that coffee, we still don't know what they need to actually live. What is an appropriate farm gate price for them to have a long-term sustainable business? Liz, and as you know, we partnered with a few other organizations, Heifer International, CLAC, which is the Latin American arm of fair trade, fair trade itself, one of our importing partners, Sustainable Harvest. We all got together and tried to find the farm gate price that would allow our producer partners to have long-term sustainable businesses. And I also wanted to learn more about that. And so I spoke to Grayson Caldwell, who led a study on living income. My name is Grayson Caldwell, and I'm the Senior Sustainability Manager at Bellwether Coffee. So remember Camilo, who we heard from earlier? I sure do. This study is based on his region of Colombia. So this project is called the Verified Living Income Study, and I asked Grayson, what's this study about? What's it trying to do? I see it as like a really substantive change in the way that the coffee industry is going to pay for coffee. So it not only looks at how much a coffee producer needs to produce a pound of coffee, how much a coffee producer needs to earn to live a dignified life. And it comes up with a living income based pricing per pound of coffee that not only covers the cost of production, but it enables coffee producers to reach that living income. So what does a living income mean? And how do we even define a dignified life? It's not like minimum wage in a certain area that's just like an arbitrary number that the government's like, sure, we should pay people $7.25 per hour. But it really looks at like, who are people in that area? So it's taking producers in a particular rural community in Colombia. The typical family size in that area is four. It looks at a culturally appropriate and nutritious diet. It looks at basic needs that need to be covered, like education and household expenses and health care, decent housing, and like other unexpected expenses. And so if you're looking at applying that to coffee, then look at what the average farm size is in that particular area. For example, the pilot that we conducted for verified living income was in Tolima, Colombia. And 
the average producer was producing on 3.3 hectares of land. That's about eight acres. It looked at what their average yield size was. And so it said, okay, if you're operating on three hectares of land, you're producing this amount of yield per year, then like how much do you need to earn per pound of coffee to be able to cover your cost of production plus have that as that like over $4,000 surplus per year to reach that living income. So to recap, this is not a minimum wage. It's something totally different. This is the amount of money that a household needs to live a dignified life, uh, you know, to provide for their kids, to set themselves up for the future. And in that study, the amount was about $4,000 per year. $4,000 does not sound like very much money. No, it doesn't. But you have to remember that these coffee businesses were like their gross revenue in a year is $14,000, right? So $4,000 is their take-home wage. They've already paid for their farm and their taxes and all this stuff. This is the amount of income they need to then live their lives. So Arno, I want to tell you how we went about calculating that because it's a pretty fascinating exercise. Grayson's going to explain it. Great. It can be complicated and time-consuming. The pilot that we conducted in Colombia took us almost a year and a half to do. So Azopep spent an entire year working with CLAC. As you know, Azopep is the cooperative that we discussed earlier, and CLAC is the Latin American extension of fair trade, which you also mentioned. They had young people in the community going out on motorcycles, visiting producers week after week to collect this data on the cost of production. They then took the manual data that they were collecting and put it into Excel spreadsheets. They sent us all of the data that they had. We analyzed the data, scrubbed out any data that wasn't directly related to their coffee production. It was data sets from 38 producers, and it was very extensive. It was how much they had paid each picker, how much they had spent on meals, providing housing and meals for all of the pickers who worked on their farm that season. It was, you know, how much gas they had bought to run every piece of equipment on their farm. It was very detailed. So after we analyzed the, the data, we had an average for 38 producers for that cooperative. And we had a call with Camilo to confirm that the findings of our data rang true to him. And then we actually signed a contract for 2021 with Asopep based on the living income based pricing. So Erna, you know, I was hearing all of this from Grayson and I kept thinking to myself, how scalable is this, right? It's it's kind of a lot, you know? So once this work is done, is this price information shared anywhere or does it just stay with us? Yeah, Liz, you can find all that information in multiple reports that we put out. We put out a really nice white paper if you want to read. It depends on how deep you want to go into the details. You can get at any of us at connect at bellwethercoffee.com. We'll tell you all about it. So Liz, at this point, I think the listener probably really wants to know, like, what were the results of verified living income assessment? Well, Arno, Grayson spoke to that. The contract that we signed at the end of 2020 was 20% higher than what we had signed the year before. 20%. 20%. So our own data told us that in order to achieve a living income wage for these producers whose coffee we had bought before, we needed to add an extra 20% to the price of what we were paying them. And we are, as we said earlier, we're specialty buyers. We're already paying above market price. I mean, that's a shocking realization. Oh, it's, it's more than that, Liz. Like having been part of this price negotiation, this price that we had to improve upon was a price that we and Asopep agreed was a fair and equitable price because one of the fascinating things about this was the producers in Asopep did not understand what their living income price was themselves sure. until we cooperatively went through this process of discovery. Yeah, interesting. 
So Arno, you're chief coffee officer here at Bellwether, not to call you out too bad, but how does that feel to know that you were paying 20% too little for coffee? It makes me feel like we're finally starting to peel back the layers of the onion here because, you know, I've been in the industry for a minute and my impression is that many companies would actually pay the right price if they knew what it was. I think oftentimes they think they already are is the real shocking part. Yeah, sure, sure. We thought we already were. I think that we thought that we were, but then again, we had enough question about it that we decided to find out, you know, and it's that finding out that has been so powerful and difficult. The, The hard thing, it's funny, the hard thing is almost not paying the new price. The hard thing is discovering the new price. Hmm. Interesting. Grayson has her own thoughts about this exercise, too. You know... I am honestly glad that we didn't do this exercise just to pat ourselves on the back to say like, yes, we always knew that we were doing the right thing. Because I think that the industry could have continued to pat themselves on the back to say like, yeah, we still feel really good about the way that we're purchasing coffee. And instead, when you have the data to back up that like what you're doing is not enough, it really puts this pressure behind you to like continue carrying this out across your supply chains and to say like we really need to be doing more data-driven decisions when it comes to procuring coffee so liz this is great but right now let's say i'm trying to open a cafe and it's kind of like what can i do right i've got so much on my plate already my barista didn't show up for work somebody put slayer on the stereo again (laughs) What am I going to do about this? That's a fair question. And it's one that I put to Chad. Yeah. I I always like this question because I understand that when you're starting out, you're small. You don't have the purchasing power or the ability to be influential. You feel like a small fish, big pond. No one's going to give me any attention. But I would say it's important to start out any new relationship where you're looking to buy coffee by asking some simple questions about, do you know how much the producer got paid for this? Will you be sure and be able to tell me the FOB price for every coffee that I buy? Are you, supplier, a data donor to the specialty coffee transaction guide. Do you, supplier, have a minimum price that you self-impose to make sure that you're paying dignified prices in the countries where coffee is produced? You can ask these questions right away. And if what you're finding is that they don't know these things, they're not willing to work with you on these things, then find a new supplier. It's as easy as that for me. I hear a lot from people I go to say, hey, you want to be a data donor to this project? Oh, but my supplier won't give me the FOB prices, so I can't participate. And I think, well, geez, get a new supplier. And I know that's oversimplifying the proposition here, but in reality, you're the customer. And I think that's a really important thing for people to remember as they set out to do this. It can be the way they want it to be. And if the first person they go to says, "Mm, hems and haws, I don't know if we can do that. Only if you buy X, Y, or Z quantity from me will I do that for you. Think about who else to work with, you know? You know, what I think is interesting about what Chad said is that it actually is that simple. You can actually choose where you buy your coffee from. And now that we are maturing as an industry to include a lot of this data that really does tell us how we can be best using our purchasing power, there's no excuse not to. 
I think that the, the important point that he makes here is that if you're in a cafe, you need to let the person that is selling you your coffee know price is part of the value, right? Like for me to know price information is right up there with how the coffee tastes and how cool your branding is in terms of why I might buy coffee from you. If they know that, they will react. So Arno, to me, there are a number of key takeaways. If you own a cafe, find out what did the farmer get paid? Suggest to your green suppliers that, you know, they contribute to verified living income assessments. And if verified living income assessments have already been done, incorporate those findings into the prices that they're paying, which you can then purchase coffee from. Yeah, Liz, I mean, ask your green suppliers to contribute to the specialty coffee transaction guide and do a little bit of research yourself. You can check the prices that your green suppliers are paying against the data in the specialty coffee transaction guide because we can all play an important part in keeping coffee farmers in business, producing amazing coffees for us that we totally need in order to run our cool businesses here. This podcast was produced by James Harper of Filter Productions uh, with music by Eli Nelson. In case you didn't know, Bellwether makes the world's first zero emissions commercial coffee roaster that lets cafes roast for themselves. We've put links to all the interviewees' social media in the show notes and links to articles that we've written at Bellwether if you want to go deeper on anything we discussed. And wherever you are in the industry, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Get at us at connect at bellwethercoffee.com. We're also online at bellwethercoffee.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends who also love coffee. Uh, Drop us a review on Apple Podcasts as well. So Liz, what are we covering in our next and final episode for this series? For our last episode, we're going to explore how to build communities using coffee in new places and with new audiences. Oh, I'm looking forward to that one. Until then, take care of yourself and we'll speak to you next time.